0: The church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. Jesus purchased eternal redemption with his blood by his resurrection and for the people God has purposed to save. And today our risen Lord reigns from heaven's throne as head of that assembly. The church is indestructible. Not because of any inherent power in the people who comprise her, certainly, The church is indestructible because she is the church of the living God. She is the church of the living and reigning Christ who declared with authority, I will build my church. Destroy it? Jesus doesn't even think in those terms in Matthew chapter 16 when he declares the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Spirit of God storms the hearts of sinners with the gospel, and nothing can prevail against the sovereign, saving purposes of God. The church of Jesus Christ is invincible, but Eden Baptist church is not. We remember Revelation chapter 2. Remember there the seven churches that Christ addresses. And he says to the church at. Remember Revelation chapter 2. Remember there the seven churches that Christ addresses. And he says to the church at Ephesus, Repent. Warning that local assembly within the universal church that will never be destroyed, he warns that local assembly, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Nothing can destroy the church universal and triumphant. However, Jesus, who reigns as sovereign Lord over Eden Baptist Church and every local assembly of believers... Has every right to extinguish our light as an assembly. And Jesus will do just that if we fail to live up to our high calling as the church of the living God. May the commendation that Christ gave the church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8 fit us. May it mark us as an assembly. He says there, I know that you have but little power. That marks us as a church. We have little power. We have little influence in this world. We are not a great and mighty church, but may this be true of us. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. To live out that purpose, to be the kind of local church that honors Christ and that is faithful to His calling, that is a light in a dark world, we need God's counsel. How are we to conduct ourselves as a local church? What are we to believe really matters? Where are we to spend our time? What is to be important to us as, as an assembly of believers? How does God counsel us to live together as a faithful body of Jesus Christ, what should take up our attention and our focus as we strive together to be a church that is faithful to the name of Christ? Do you care? Do we have interest in these questions? Do we desire to be such a church? In the interest of such divine counsel, we begin a series of sermons together here beginning in 1 Timothy today. The Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy, and I'd like you to turn there and to turn as we give something of an overview of this book today and begin to work our way through it, asking this question, what does Christ want of us as His church? I'd like you to look at chapter 3 And verse 14, as Paul writes very personally here to Timothy, it draws attention to what really matters and who we are as the people of God. He says in chapter 3 and verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This book is written... It is a word from God through the Apostle Paul to the church of Jesus Christ that we may know how to act within the assembly. There is a requirement, there is a calling, there is a stewardship that we have as a local church. And we have here this word from God as to what that, how that is to look. He calls the church here at the end of verse 15... The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. This is a high calling. And so, as we labor together, God willing, over these weeks, may we remember that we are the church of the living God. And may we remember that together we have a responsibility to fulfill this stewardship that has been given to us and to keep bright the light As we look at 1 Timothy and strive to begin in our understanding of it through this series together, we notice in the first verse of the book, chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is written, this letter, by the apostle Paul. The apostle, remember the idea there, is one appointed as an official messenger of Jesus to serve as an eyewitness of the resurrection. Paul received that knowledge in something of a strange way. He didn't see the risen Christ as did the other disciples, but there was this appearance of Christ to him on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And Acts 9, we find here this revelation of Jesus. So Paul is an apostle, is an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection, and he is commissioned to proclaim the salvation that is in Christ through Jesus' death and resurrection. And you notice here in verse 1 that it is by command of God. Paul is a man under divine orders. It says to us, first of all, that he ministers as an act of obedience to God. Paul did not run around saying, I'm a wonderful person. I want everyone to realize that. I feel very self-important and I hope to convince everyone of that as I go from town to town. He was following God's will. He was under command. But secondly, it, speaks, it says that Paul speaks with authority as the official representative of God's saving truth. As an apostle, he speaks with authority. Therefore, what Paul is going to write concerning the responsibility of the Ephesian church and what he's going to write about the responsibilities of Timothy come to us as authoritative word from an apostle. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, Paul is commissioned by the God who is the Savior. And this theme will come out throughout the book and by Christ Jesus who is the very essence of our final salvation. He is our hope. He is that to which we look. And more on that to come. He writes, the apostle Paul... This one under the command of God 2 verse 2 Timothy my true child in the faith to Timothy my true child in the faith hailing from the city of Lystra Timothy's father was a gentile his mother was a Jew according to Acts 16 and 2 Timothy 1:5 this mixed parentage would have conferred on Timothy the unenviable status of an illegitimate child in the eyes of the Jews It would be very intriguing to know what went on with his mother and how she left the faith in that moment to marry this man who was a Gentile and not part of the people of God. We don't have that history. All that we know is that Timothy would have been seen as an illegitimate child. It would have been a point of great horror to be seen in such a way. But Paul calls Timothy what here? His true child. That word true, the Greek word means lawfully begotten, legitimate, genuine. Timothy, I don't care what anyone says about your physical parentage. You are my true child. You are a genuine, lawful child of God, and your faith evidences that over and over again. Paul may have led Timothy to Christ on his first journey to Lystra. That's not provable by any means. These references to him as his son do not indicate that necessarily. It's very possible. But what we do know is that on Paul's second missionary journey, as he passed through Lystra, he sees in this young man something very special. In his giftedness, in his loyalty to Christ, in his spiritual stability, he says, I want you to join me in my travels, to go with me from town to town and to represent Christ. There weren't too many people chosen in this way by the Apostle Paul. There was something very unique about this young man. But I'll tell you, on paper, he doesn't look very impressive. He's young. He's inexperienced. Timothy is, it would seem, somewhat of a timid man. He is given to being intimidated by people. 2 Timothy 1.7, 1 Corinthians 16.10. Paul is always kind of telling the churches to be careful with this man, to listen to him. And he says to Timothy, we've not been given a spirit of fear. It's not a throwaway phrase. Timothy was timid. He could be intimidated by people. He struggled with physical illness. He may have been a frail man. It's difficult to know entirely, but Paul writes about his known illness here in this book at the end of the book. But above all, Timothy was a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, and that's what really matters. Whatever we see visibly of this man, whatever his constitution, he was faithful as a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul could lean on him and know that the man would follow through, that he had a love for others that superseded the love for self, that he had a love for Christ which would lead him to tackle anything, no matter how timid he might be. This young man shouldered tremendous responsibilities. Maybe I read too much into the text, but I feel the sense that he must have had when Paul continued to send him off to other places. I'm sure, as as the text indicates, he leaned on Paul for strength, for encouragement. He was his spiritual father, and yet Paul kept sending him somewhere else. Away from him. And that occasions this letter, as we see here in this greeting to him. Just to finish that out in verse 2, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. For the believer, it is a greeting of immense comfort and powerful provision. It is the mercy and the peace, it is the grace of God that ultimately matters. Even though Timothy is separated from Paul. And Paul writes then in verse 3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. We're not going to go far into this verse today. We'll pick up here again, Lord willing, next week. But Paul and Timothy may have split up as Paul was en route to Macedonia. But at any rate, Timothy is given the charge to shepherd the church in Ephesus. Stay put. Don't come to me. Don't go anywhere else. I need you there in Ephesus. Ephesus was a thriving port city of great significance and economic strength and it formed an important beachhead for the gospel. It was important that this church would be stabilized because it had influence throughout the region. And Paul reminds Timothy of earlier instructions concerning the work there that he is to fulfill as he manages this flock of believers at Ephesus and gives steerage to the work. As he writes out this book, let's just take a very brief something of a jet tour overpass of 1 Timothy as we just begin to become familiar with the text. Chapter 1, verses 3 and following down through verse 11, we find here that Timothy is charged to oppose false teachers. As verse 3 indicates, you are to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Read controversy. Read difficulty there. This is not going to be an easy task for this young man. But he needs to stand up to the false teachers and to present the truth of God and to hold strong to the truth. In verse 12 of chapter 1 down through verse 17, we read of God's grace and calling upon Paul's life and this wonderful truth that God reaches sinners, even those in rebellion against Him. As verse 12 says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, anointing me to His service. We find here the grace of God operative in Paul's life. In verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20, there is again this charge to Timothy. As verse 18 says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. As he writes this letter, he is saying to him, you have a job to do. I have given you this. I have commissioned you to this and in a very real sense Jesus has. Follow through. In chapter 2 we find indications concerning God's will for public worship. There is very practical matters addressed here. What do we do in prayer? How do women dress within the assembly? And the proper role of men and women in regard to public instruction in the assembly. How do we put these things together? How do we serve as the church of Jesus Christ? In chapter 3, he says there will be leaders in the assembly. This is Christ's love for the church. And he gives careful instruction as to who is to be assigned to this task. Officers of the church with the emphasis upon character and godliness in verse 15, then we read, If I write, if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. These instructions again clearly giving guidance to how the church is to live out its life together. In chapter 4, Timothy's responsibility to encourage sound doctrine is noted and sound discipline within the church. Notice chapter 4 and verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, 4-6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Timothy's role here clearly comes out in instructing the assembly, in guiding them and training them through the words of truth. Verse 11 of this same chapter, chapter 4 and verse 11, command and teach these things. Paul just continues to go through this concept. This concept continues to show itself throughout his letter. Keep commanding these things. Keep teaching these things. Keep instructing the assembly in its faithfulness. Chapter 5 and cha- through chapter 6, we have instructions concerning various kinds of people in the church. There's instructions, you'll notice there in chapter 5, concerning widows. takes up quite a bit of this chapter. But also instructions concerning elders in the assembly. Slaves. Masters, the wealthy, and numerous instructions again laced throughout to Timothy himself as he is to give guidance to this assembly. Now, as we meditate on Paul's instructions to Timothy, the issues that really matter to God begin to shine through. They really rise to the surface as you ponder this text of this letter. What should matter most to local churches who long to let their light shine to the glory of God? What should matter most to the local church that longs to live as the church of the living God? We begin to see these themes rise from within the text. Rising certainly to the surface very early, beginning at that third verse, We find that doctrine matters. Let's just concentrate here for for a few moments on these very significant issues. First of all, within the church of Jesus Christ, doctrine matters. Doctrine, or the word teaching, that is the teaching of God's Word, is vital. Vibrant churches care about the truth. They care about the truth not as defined by the culture around Not as defined within their own desires, but they care about the truth that has been delivered through the revelation of God. They anxiously defend the faith as a precious deposit handed to them by the Lord. They do not ignore or minimize or avoid the truth. They proclaim it and they defend it. Now there is a danger here in a sense as we talk about defense Because as we talk about the defense of the faith, there is the danger to think of ourselves as a church as locked in just to us, to put up walls around the church and to keep the doctrine pure within. No, we're to disseminate it. But we don't want to miss this particular point. I remember in my travels to India, I purchased some earrings for Beth and They were probably more valuable than I was. Uh, It wasn't really all that expensive a gift, but I wasn't going to lose it. These earrings that passed through, and I had a pouch on my my stomach, and there was a lot of theft in that area. And I carried that thing on my pouch and went through the uh, security at the airport and had to pull the thing out and get it all out and take all that time. But I put it right back in and put it right back on my stomach, that it wouldn't be taken from it. I wasn't going to lose that, and I couldn't wear the earrings, so that didn't work. I mean, that might have been an easier way, come to think of it, but I was going to protect that at all costs until I got that gift to her. There's a sense there, an illustration there, of the picture of the truth of God's doctrine that he has delivered to us. We are to protect it until we get home. We're not to let anybody take it away. We're not to let it become corrupt. We're not to lose it in our interest for other things. We're to keep it right in our gut and to hold on till we get home. (laughs) Doctrine matters. And we're not to ignore or minimize this truth. We're to proclaim it and to defend it at the same time. Notice chapter 1 and verse 3. As we bring this theme out, the doctrine matters. Verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation, rather than, notice the phrase, the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see it there. The precious jewel of the faith. It's given to us as a stewardship to get it home. Doctrine matters. Heterodoxy, false doctrine, is to be significant to us. We are to oppose it as we fulfill this stewardship. Notice chapter 1 in verse 10 as this theme continues. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexual enslavers, liars, perjurers. We're not taking time to go through his whole concept here, Lord willing, in the future. But whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. There is lifestyle. It's not only what people think in their head and what they believe on paper, but how it fleshes itself out in life. There is a lifestyle that, not, that is not consistent with sound doctrine. That should matter to the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, "...in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I have with which I have been entrusted." Paul views this doctrine, this teaching, as a sacred trust. And it is a charge or stewardship that he clearly passes on to Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 18. This charge I entrust to you. Chapter 4 and verse 11, where he says, Command and teach these things. There's the stewardship. There's the charge. That he gives to, uh, to Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Again, the charge that is here. And Timothy, as we come to the second book, the second letter, is to pass these ideas on to others. Entrust these truths to faithful individuals. So Timothy is to labor against those who denied the faith and corrupted sound doctrine. He was not to mold and change the true doctrine to fit his situation. He was to remain tenaciously loyal to the true doctrine entrusted to him. Now what does this say to us? Doctrine matters. So what? How does it look within our assembly? It says to us certainly that a faithful local church is going to take a certain game face when it comes to true doctrine. It says, first of all, that the church should be a teaching environment. There should be an instruction that is constantly going on as we seek to know the mind of God. We are not to be an entertaining entity, we are to be a teaching entity. The doctrine matters. And where the true doctrine is delivered and disseminated, we're at least on task there. Chapter 3 and verse 2, chapter 4, verse 11, 5, 7, 17, 6, 17, all of these places we see it is to be a place of instruction and teaching. With that, we have to say, from a more negative perspective, it needs to be a discerning environment in which we test the spirits of speakers and authors and teachers, even within our own assembly. This is part of the work that we are called to do. Not only to disseminate what is true, but to be discerning about what is not true. Which means you have to enter into the world of critique. You've got to be able to think about what others, others are saying and teaching and to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong. Now, we need to be very cautious here. Both of these efforts, the teaching and the discerning, take great energy and commitment to the truth of Jesus Christ. It's hard work to be faithful to God's truth. I don't find it very hard work To share my opinions about sports, about a team, about who's good and who's not and who's going to win and who's not and who deserves it and who doesn't. You can say whatever you want to say because it's your opinion and it really doesn't make any difference. Usually. But when it comes to teaching and disseminating the Word of God, you've got to put in a lot of effort. Because it's what God thinks. And we need to think his thoughts after him. So with all of this energy that that it takes to be a teaching environment and a discerning environment, we have got to be willing to put forward that work, but also to turn some people off. There will be times when churches that teach and discern offend. Now as we carry on that kind of environment. We need to be very careful because we can go down a very wrong path. We can take on a face that God does not approve. First, let me just say, to put a face on it, we can become a scholar's guild. There's a danger for that in a church that really elevates teaching and preaching. We are not to be a scholar's guild. We are not to simply be a lecture hall. And we have got to be cautious that that doesn't happen. Secondly, particularly with respect to the discerning environment, we can become harsh and critical in spirit and negative and judgmental. There are people that I read who are very discerning and very helpful to me. Many times they see things with great perception. But some of these individuals, I'll not name them, But some of these individuals, I got the feeling somewhere along the line there was a switch that got flipped where they could never again in their life see anything good in anyone. And I read them because they're helpful. They're very good at judgment and discerning and understanding where people are coming from. We cannot be that as a local church. Everybody's wrong but us. Everybody who presents some truth has got something hidden underneath that we got to sniff out and be negative and judgmental and critical. Where does that all end? When we become a scholar's guild on the one hand, or when we become a harsh and critical environment judging everyone on the other, what really settles into the church is pride. This is a delicate balance. A delicate tightrope, which Jesus evidenced to us how to handle when it said of him that he spoke the truth in love. We need to speak the truth, and we need to speak it in love. In grace, in mercy, in kindness, recognizing our own failures and our own weaknesses, yet speaking the truth. And every one of us probably leans one way or the other. We have a leaning toward being judgmental and critical. Or we have a leaning toward being far too passive and accepting of people that disagree with what is right. We must, as a church, walk this rope. But if our candle is to burn bright as a church, we must love God's Word and we must defend it tenaciously. Doctrine matters. Secondly, And these two go together so necessarily. Godliness matters. Godly character matters. We see this rising from the text. What is the ultimate goal of pursuing faithful doctrine in the local church? It's not intellectual knowledge. It's not pride to make ourselves seem better than others. It's not even equipping us to address false teachers. That's not ultimately the point of true doctrine. What is the ultimate goal of true doctrine? Chapter 1 and verse 5 is laid out beautifully. Remember this charge, this trust that's been given to Timothy? Think of this charge, this precious jewel of God's truth. What's the end of bringing this home and protecting it? We've got to get this. Chapter 1 and verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's it. And this godliness concept runs throughout 1 Timothy. The end of true doctrine is purity of heart, is a clear conscience, a sincere faith. We see it as we look in chapter 3 of the leaders who are judged ultimately not by their theological acumen, but by their character. Now, an elder is to be a person who is capable of teaching the truth of God. Chapter 3 and verse 2. But what really matters is you look at chapter 3, verses 1 and following, in the qualifications for overseers and deacons, you see here that there is a qualification of character. Present character is at issue in each of these Guidelines. Again, as we come back to chapter 3 and verse 15, it is how we behave ourselves in the household of God. Not just what we know. Not that we can pass a test on true doctrine, but how we live. Does the truth of God's Word transform the way we live our lives? That's what matters. And if it doesn't, it's dead doctrine, and it will kill We are to behave ourselves in the living church of God as the living church of God. Chapter 4 and verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for what? Not a doctrinal test. Train yourself for godliness. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Chapter 4 and verse 12, let no one despise you for, for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You see, again, it's not show others that you are the most discerning about the false doctrine that is around. Show others that you have the most theological knowledge as such. But all of this defense of the faith and this definite knowledge that's needed and this standing up to false teachers that's very essential is to evidence itself in a godliness of life that Timothy will demonstrate to the assembly. Not in an outward show, but in reality. Practice these things, he says in verse 15 of chapter 4. 4.15, practice these things, devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, both. Look hard at the doctrine, but look hard at your own heart. Persist in this, for by doing, so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There is nothing less at stake here than the salvation of God's people as we pursue holiness of life. And it gets very practical in family matters. Chapter 5 and verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I, I, I think we could paraphrase Paul here and say, I don't really care if your doctrine is solid. You don't take care of the people in your family who belong to you. You don't have love and respect for those that are your own. You've denied the faith. doesn't matter what you have in your head. It matters how you live. Very practical issues here, aren't they? To the wealthy, chapter 6 and verse 17. Chapter 6 and verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. Godliness matters, a purity of life, freedom of conscience, a sincerity in the faith that we live out. That is, not hypocritical living, not saying that I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, but living like Jesus Christ. In godliness of life, following his example. A church in which people are not growing increasingly godly, it would then seem to indicate, is a church that needs to repent. Maybe I should just say that more boldly. They need to repent. Any church where godliness of life is not increasing is in trouble. A church that does not progress in holiness is a church that is in danger of being extinguished by Christ. Now, what I just said there is going to go right through us if we're just thinking in earthy terms. Because we can see churches all over the place, everywhere, all throughout this world. They're not honoring Christ. There's not an, a growing godliness in the life of people, and you see they still keep going. in fact, they keep growing. They have a lot more money and facilities and influence in this world than we have. We can't look just at the earthy external. I believe that there are churches where Christ has extinguished the light and they don't even know it. Like the glory cloud that abandoned the temple, Jesus Christ has long ago left. He's been unwelcome for so long that people don't even realize he left. Their back is turned to the glory and when the glory leaves, they're unaffected. We can go on existing on paper as a business, as a social organization and never know that Jesus has left That's not what I'm talking about. He extinguishes the light of those that abandon his truth and the true godliness that he desires for us. May we never become that hollow, empty, pathetic excuse for a church that grows in corruption. But may God be transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. There is so much at stake here. Doctrine matters. Godliness matters. And thirdly, we must say this in light of 1 Timothy church order matters. Jesus is concerned. I'm not going to take the time to go through this here today. By God's grace, we will over the weeks. But he is concerned about how we pray in the church. He's concerned, as I mentioned, about how women dress about how men and women, and I would say men as well, but it's just the specific focus here is upon how women dress, how men and women in various age groups relate to one another. The character of church officers, the reading of God's Word in the assembly, how widows and the needy relate to the assembly and how the assembly relates to them. How the wealthy view their wealth and how they use their wealth. Jesus cares about how His church functions. Now, it's very related to the preceding point, that He cares about godliness. But I'm talking here now more in structural terms, in functional terms. How the church operates, Jesus cares about that. And we have very specific instructions through this book. He loves His church enough to reveal a basic order of life. From every indication, it would appear that the only questions some local churches ask concerning what they should be doing are these questions: what works, and what's hot; what's popular, and what makes us successful. I don't. I hope that that's not being unloving and harsh. But if anything means anything, in this book, as it's laid out as to what we ought to be doing, we have got to be able to discern that there are churches that are simply asking these questions. What works and what's hot? We can't give in to that. Who are we to think that we know what works? We will never know what God is actually doing through His people who remain faithful to His Word. All we can know is what God has said, and it is our calling to obey Him with joy and with implicit trust. In our studies through 1 Timothy, we're going to encounter a number of directives for the church that may not make a lot of sense to us. And I guarantee you, there are some directives here in this book that are not popular. And so on that level of things, they don't work. They're not going to be received by this culture. And we have got to constantly make decisions about whether we're gonna cave into the culture around and how it presses us, or whether we are going to remain faithful to God's Word and His truth. This is a project that has to go on. It's a project that's got to go on among the leaders of the church right now, the adults of this assembly, and among the coming generation as we teach them the truth. We will always be able to hijack the church of Jesus Christ and use it for whatever purposes we choose. But will we remain faithful to the calling? Will we guard the stewardship that has been given to us? It isn't going to work pragmatically in this culture on external terms. But will we trust the Lord? Well, saying all that, of course, we fall very far short of His call upon our lives. We know this. We must discern this and understand this. But yet, give our all. We must never forget that obedience to such commands as we find in 1 Timothy is what keeps our candle burning in the darkness. May it burn on. And may it burn brighter as we work together as the church of Jesus Christ. And in the end, what matters is chapter 6 and verse 13. If I could just conclude with this. I charge you, chapter 6, verse 13. I charge you, writes the Apostle, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who, is, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. May we say amen and keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doctrine matters, godliness matters, church order matters, because in the end, in the end, all that matters is the glory of God, which He is longing to display in this assembly, which I believe by His grace He is displaying in this assembly, and which by the mercies of God He will display to ever fuller demonstrations of that glory in the days to come. We go nowhere unless we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, unless His death for sin and His resurrection power is yours. Through faith in that gospel, we come into His church, and then as the church, it is our high calling to keep this trust and to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let's labor together through these weeks as God gives us life to grow as the people of God. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we so need you. We sense our insufficiencies, our failures, we talk about our knowledge of the true doctrine, we know that we know so little. And when we talk about godliness, we fall so far short. When we talk about the order of this church and the glory of God in it, we need your help. We plead for it. We ask for it. We pray, dear God, that you, by your mercy, would meet with us and bring us into the light evermore increasingly bringing us to that light, to display it, to rejoice in it. God, build your church. Build us up that we may be faithful, though small in strength. May we prove faithful to your word. This is our plea. God, as this church labors together as you give us life through First Timothy in these weeks to come. I plead with all of my heart and soul that it would be a transforming experience for us. That we would draw closer to you. That you would change this assembly through the teaching of your word. We want to be faithful. I believe that's why the people are here. Because they want to be faithful to a church where your your word is honored. And where that word is is disseminated and defended. Please help us to be that, Father. We don't know how you see us, ultimately, but may we be faithful to the calling that you've given and center on the things that matter. May we not be drawn in by a culture that surrounds us, that says at every turn, even within the Christian church, That if we just push the right buttons and do the right things externally, we can generate success. God, help us to define success according to your word and to know that nothing will produce it but faithful obedience to doing what Jesus wants done in his church and to living out what he wants to see happen in our lives. May we be faithful to that calling. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.